Welcome to Ottawa Valley Vineyard, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share his love. Father, we're so thankful for your word. Uh, we come to it with a sense of reverence. We come to it with a sense that uh, these words uh, that were written down are words that come from you. Uh, we don't treat them lightly. We celebrate them. We recognize their power. That, uh, that as they're read, um, they do work in our hearts. They plant seeds in our hearts. And we just say that we welcome those seeds to be planted. We welcome that word to grow. We want to be made new by it, be transformed by it, be made more like you. So come let your word do its work among us. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. So we started last week with the beginning of that text, which Matt looked at, uh, really looking at uh, the, some preparation for Lent and looking at the sort of the story of um, Judas. And now we're at the place where uh, Jesus has gathered with his disciples. They're about to have the Last Supper, but somebody has to set the table. Somebody has to uh, go and, and arrange it and prepare the food and do all of the necessary practical things that are required uh, for them to gather and for them to have an experience that would ultimately be transmitted down to us across the years. So we're going to read Luke chapter 2, verses 7 to 13, and just uh, pull some things out of it. So let's just read this together. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. Tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So we're just going to go through verse by verse and pull a few things out of there. Just this verse, verse 7 says this, says, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Full stop with the words, had to be. How many of you like it when there is something that had to be? How many of you love it when there's something that has to happen in your life? I just want to bring our attention to that idea. Uh, those words in the Greek is a really simple word, uh, but it is, it is what must happen, what is absolutely necessary, what is inevitable duty, and what is proper. And how does that sit and land with our Canadian independent, I'm going to do what I want, I'm the master of my own destiny sensibility? So first, I want to let the text just sort of confront us right there uh, with that idea. When Jesus looked at Passover and looked at this celebration, looked at what he was about to do and celebrate with his disciples, it wasn't like, let's sit down and look at Google Calendar and see where we can fit this into our schedule and make it work. Uh, if it fits with my, if I don't have hockey practice, if I don't have uh, all of these other things in my schedule, there's no activities for the kids, uh, then maybe we can fit that in. If it doesn't work this year, maybe we'll do it next year. But for the Jewish nation, there were things in their lives 
in their way of being, uh, things that they were required to do that they were absolutely required to do. There's a way in which uh, obligation um, is something that was a part of Jesus, the creator of the universe's life. If anybody was free to say, hey, you know what, let's just do Passover next week. I, I got a long walk. It's far. We're going to have to rush. The table's not ready. It was Jesus, right? And so I want to let that just sit with us for a minute, um, that sometimes there is a must, and that's just increasingly absent from our cultural vocabulary, right? For us, so much of our Christian faith is, hey, this is just an add-on. This is a part of my life. I can get to church. This can fit in uh, around work. This can fit in around career and other things. But the Bible is really okay with the idea that some things had to happen and that we have to respond to them. We have to respond to them. Uh, when we look at this story, we're going to uh, examine it in a little bit, what the unleavened bread means and what the Passover lamb means. But when we uh, look back at it, uh, that Passover thing that, that, that had to happen, that had to be celebrated, had to happen for a reason because the universe was created by God in such a way that it was determined from the beginning that something needed to be dealt with, that sin needed to be dealt with, and it had to be dealt with, and it had to be celebrated, it had to be acknowledged, it had to be uh, grappled with, uh, with the people. Uh, there's something obligatory about recognizing the lordship of Jesus. It is not an option that he's Lord, and if he is the Lord, uh, we don't really get to say how much that matters to us. It matters to us. Because he's the Lord, living appropriately in response to God, uh, to who he is, and what he's done isn't that optional extra. We could put it like this, um, is God for you, is your faith, is that an app that you've put on your iPhone, or is that uh, the OS? Is your Christianity, is your faith, your following of Jesus, your, your obedience, your, your life of going to church, giving, all of those things, are those things like an app that you can just sort of do and click on that one when you want? Or is everything driven through that framework of following uh, the person of Jesus, responding to who he is? I want to just put this statement out there. Freedom from religion does not remove uh, the necessity for obedience. It simply changes the motivation for obedience. Right, so we look at freedom and these incredible freedoms that we have. Like Jesus, uh, when he died, the veil of the temple was torn in two. It's possible for us to access God. Uh, the, the, the law uh, became something that was, uh, was viewed differently. But that didn't mean that there were not things that God, that Paul, the teachers that followed were requiring Christians to do and requiring them to act out of. But what was different was they were no longer required to do them out of fear, out of shame, to earn God's favor, uh, to make him love them, to do all of that kind of stuff. The reason they do it is out of gratitude and worship and joy and freedom right? There's the freedom, but that freedom is still obligatory. So, so just an example uh, for me, um, like two weeks ago Sunday, uh, when I came to church, I came in the morning, I came at 8.30, I got here before anybody else. I was the first person to walk in the door. I was trying to learn and figure out and do some setup procedures so that we can get some people trained and equipped on stuff like that. Came in the door at 8.30, I'd just been sick. I'd lost 12 pounds in uh, two days. I was I came in here and in setting up the sound gear and getting it on the table and getting Sunday school stuff, I sweat through my clothes. 
so that I was just a sopping mess. And absolutely everybody in my leadership community would have said, dude, you do not need to be here. You do not, like, go home. Like, you're actually gross. <laughs> right? And we don't want to see you right now. That's what they would say, right? I, I was not obligated to be here. I was not under contract to be here. I've missed maybe one Sunday in, in, since we planted the church. But there was the absolute grace for me to miss that. But still, I went home, I showered, I changed my clothes again, and I brought myself back here, and I got here by the end of the sermon so that I could just lay eyes on you, because I love you. There's something in me that did not, I could not stand the idea of sitting at home and watching Netflix or whatever. I, I, because I loved you, there's nowhere else that I wanted to be. The, the, the idea of just sitting at home and like, you know, I could just lie down here and I could put a show on or I could go to sleep. Like that was overpowered, not by a sense of obligation to be here with you, but by a sense of I'm missing something if I'm not here with you. And that's what happens in the kingdom of God uh, when he says there are things for us to do. There are things that we're obligated to do. Uh, that obligation is meant to come from an inner passion for Jesus. And so if that inner passion for Jesus isn't there, then that is something that we want uh, to be asking the question, why isn't that there? What is missing? What are we not understanding about who God is if we don't want to be in the presence of the people of God, if we don't want to be in a place of worshiping him? And that's the question uh, for us. If our freedom leads us away from Jesus, it might not actually be freedom at all. And that word obedience is not an unfamiliar word in the scriptures. If we look at uh, Matthew chapter 20, uh, 28, 19, 20, this is our framework for everything we do in terms of uh, the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Now, let's just say, how would that work as an evangelism tactic? We're just going to advertise. We're going to put a sign out there, put something up on the web. Uh, we want to welcome you to Jesus Obedience classes. How, how's that, how's that going to fly evangelistically? But that's precisely what we're doing. That's precisely what we're called to do. But we're called to teach that into people. Not enforced by the sword, not enforced by law, but what we're called to do is to create an environment where people understand that there is a reason to passionately follow and obey and love Jesus, to want to be in the presence of his people and to want to be in his presence and want to be seeking him. But that's a response to who he is, it's still obedience. Call to obey. Going on to the next verse, Luke chapter 22, uh, verse 8 says this. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us. A great question there is, why did he send Peter and John? They're the top two, right? Top two, top, top two dogs in the discipleship circles. 
right? Because there's a real hierarchy. <laughs> it's not how we operate, right? But we know that, that those were the disciples that Jesus loved. Those were the closest to him. He could have sent like, uh, he could have sent like disciples further out. He could have sent two of the 70 to go and arrange that. Go ahead, you guys, we need you to do some stuff, right? Because it's just, it's just really, really practical work. It's right. Okay, go and find the table. Go and find a tablecloth. Go source a lamb. Uh, arrange for the priests to kill it. Make sure it's bled properly. Uh, go bring it over here. We got to find a place to cook it. We got to organize that. We're putting on a potluck for everybody. Somebody's got to make the beans. Somebody's got to make the meatballs. Uh, somebody's got to make a casserole. We got to do this stuff. We got to get it together. Anybody can do it. We certainly wouldn't want the senior pastor having to do that job. Uh, we certainly wouldn't want the elders to have to do that job. That's just a job for somebody else uh, who's got a real servant gift who wants to do it. Uh, somebody with the gift of helps. Let's find someone with the gift of hospitality uh, who wants to do that job. But for some reason, Jesus chooses uh, Peter and John the two who are ultimately going to be uh, the anchoring leaders of the church. It's a challenge to us. Are there jobs that we're called to do in the kingdom that are too low for you, that are too menial for you? He makes it a, a very clear point, and we see it later on in the discussion. We're going to talk it to it two sermons uh, down the road, uh, is that he, he says the greatest among you must be the servant of all. So what is he calling you to do to serve, uh, to set the table for him? What is he calling you to do to facilitate an encounter with Jesus, to facilitate dinner with Jesus, to facilitate the conversation with Jesus? There might be some of you who have said, man, that job is just not for me. And you need to maybe hear again a call to obedience. Whatever small thing it is, no matter how it fits with your gift mix, maybe God is calling you to serve him in a radical and unique way to do something that is uncomfortable and challenging that maybe uh, you wouldn't have thought that you were called to do before. I love this piece, uh, prepare the Passover meal so that we may eat it. That seems kind of redundant to me. Prepare the Passover meal so that we may put a selfie up and uh, put it on Instagram, make sure we get a photo first of us all around the table. I don't know, of course we're going to eat it, right? So there's something that's to be consumed, something that's to be t taken in together. Jesus is actually selling them not on uh, doing uh, a thing, not on making a presentation, but he's selling them on an experience. That's just something, another thought for us that comes out of the text to anchor us is that uh, what we're doing in terms of Christianity, what we're doing in terms of practical things, what we're doing in terms of the acts of service that we do are meant to actually facilitate relationship. But very often the relationship can't happen unless somebody makes the coffee. So be a person who makes the coffee so the deep work of God can happen in the hearts. Uh, going on, it says this in verse 9, they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. Tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with you? So this is an unusual way to give directions. How many of you think that maybe it would have been better if Jesus had used Google Maps? Uh, place the pin. Like, hey, this is where it's going to happen. We were at this guy's house before. Do you remember the address? Let me write this down for you so you know how to get there. I just want to bring it to our attention that very often those things that Jesus calls us to do in a practical way to serve him, he does not give us the full plan and the full story before he, be he asks us to begin walking. 
very often uh, we're given uh, funny little intermediate steps along the way that may or may not make perfect sense to us. Go look for a guy with a jug of water on his head, right? And then creep him. Then say, go talk to him, right? <laughs> if there's a dude with a jug of water on his head, first off, like culturally, just to bring in uh, a sense of what that meant culturally, is dudes didn't carry uh, water, right? That's, that's a woman's job, which is that kind of stuff should really, totally kidding. Um, that in that culture, that was not something that a man was going to do, right? But go find the man who is the lowliest servant and follow him. An interesting thought. Go find a man of low status. Find a man of the lowest status you can see and follow him to where he's going. And so they creep him along. They follow this guy. I don't know what this guy thought, right? Go to this house that he'll show you. And then it says, go enter into the house with him. I don't know whether they had a conversation about this or not, but do you imagine what this is like? This guy's going into the house with his bucket of water. He's got shame. Like, what the heck am I doing here? I got the bucket of water. Why was there a woman to send and do this job? But I got to do it. Everybody's looking at me. And he's walking in with his bucket of water. And there's these two dudes, like, looking for, like, fairly confident apostles, people, uh, following him in. And they just come in the house with him. Hey, how are you? Like, what the heck? Get out of my house, man. <laughs> right? Like, get out of here. Like, what's going on? The master, like, didn't invite you in here. It's like, yeah, we'd like to speak with the master. Because um, we, we, we want you to know that the teacher uh, is, wants to know where the room is. Like, come on, I don't want to ask these questions. Like, just go in and just ask where the room is for us. Like, can we, like, not set this up online, like an Airbnb or something? Like, can we may not make a plan ahead? Like, what's been arranged here? Let's, let's figure out how to make this thing go. Let's figure out how to make it work out. But they go into this whole journey with incredible uncertainty into this crazy place. They have to have in their hearts some confidence that the thing that Jesus has called them to do, Jesus has prepared for them to do. And for you and for your journey, just hearing something out of this text, there are probably things that you are called to do. Conversations that you're called to start with unbelieving friends, uh, things you're called to be an example for in your workplace, ministries to start, projects to begin. Jesus has put those things in your heart, and he's shown you a piece that's a piece of the picture of the future for you. And he hasn't told you all the steps and all that he's prepared to make it happen. Now, I like a good plan. I would really like, we talk about this with leaders of the church, like, let's just have a visioning time. And God, if you could lay out for us a perfect five-year plan that tells us every step that we're supposed to go between now and then, uh, we could do that. We'll just follow it all. Like, Jesus, actually, just send us an email, Jesus, that will tell us what we can do as a church so that we know how everything's going to work out. Now, it's great to ask, and we're going to ask, and we prayerfully ask, and we seek God's direction as leaders, but even our best asking and our best listening is not going to provide for us absolute security and certainty that every step we take on the path is going to be uh, known and understood by us. He very often calls us to the unknown. We're going to ask for everything we get. We're going to listen as clearly as we can. We're going to try to figure out how to do these things together. But we know that we're following a God who is fully capable of keeping secrets and fully capable of keeping us in a place of deep trust in him. Because that's actually what he's looking for. 
He's actually looking for that place of deep trust in our lives. So sometimes those things that he's calling you to, you just have to walk and look for the guy with a bucket of water on his head and creep the guy to his house and find out in the end that Jesus is going to work it out. Our part is to obey and to do the work. It's his job to figure out the steps. It says this in verse 12, and he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as they had told him. And they prepared the Passover. And those are the moments that are beautiful when Jesus has a word of knowledge that he speaks into our lives. He says, hey, this is what's going to happen. And we get there and see it is just as he told us. Those are the glory moments. Those are beautiful moments. And we've experienced that. I mean, maybe this is a moment for us as a church. Like we, when Ann and I planted the church and knew we were going to come here, we didn't know that we were going to be in Carlton Place High School. We didn't know that you guys were all going to be here. Uh, we didn't know what the details were. We didn't know that we were going to be at the Canoe Club for a while. We didn't know about the lives in people's houses. We didn't know the ups and downs of the journey. But we did have an imagining that sometime we might be in a room sharing the Jesus story with a group of people that looked something like you. That's all we knew. And we just took step after step after step after step. And here we are. It's a moment of, of that revelation, but the, all the uncertainty between then and now. Lots of pain, lots of struggle, lots of challenge in that. There's a call to continually keep walking uh, towards the vision that he has for you. He will set it up. We can't control the process. Um, just now we go back to understand the core meaning. I wanted to get through those sort of uh, logistical, the pieces of, of understanding from the text that are about sort of how journey works. But what I want us to understand now is just what the table was that they were preparing. I want us to understand the heart of it. So I want to understand these two big symbols uh, from the first uh, verse that we read uh, in, in 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. What's the deal with unleavened bread? And we talked about it a little bit in communion. One, it doesn't taste that good. It's a cracker. We had a cracker. And we had communion with those little cups, like in a church that is way like further ahead in the journey than us and has a thousand people. And you get the little cup with the little communion wafer built into the top of the cup, and you kind of like there's like this little small thing, and you kind of gotta like peel the little plastic off and get the little wafer. And then you do the bread, and then you peel the next layer off, and you get the juice. Personally, I think that's a great system for us. I would like to do it. It's very, very simple. Um, either that, or we could go with the common cup with real wine and just pass it around. I don't know. It's an either or for us. I don't know what we're going to do. Um, where everybody dips, like dip, and you're really saying a prayer that it's really strong wine because you don't want the germs to get you to jump out of the cup. I don't know how they jump out of the cup. Like, I, germs are like freaking us out, right? So, you know, we can do all kinds of different things and experiment together. But the idea here uh, is, is that this bread that we, you know, we have bread, unless you're the gluten-free type, we have bread that has leaven in it. Um, but the bread that they would have used in the, um, uh, in the time of Jesus would have been an unleavened bread. That means it has no yeast in it. And, uh, and there's some significance in that. It's actually one of the, there's a huge argument in the church to split the east and west sides of the church. The reason there's an Eastern Orthodox Church, one of the three theological issues between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church is whether the communion bread should have yeast in it or not. 
That's what divided two massive uh, parts of the church in half. So we're not really going to worry about it all that much uh, for us. Um, but there is some significance to that idea of unleavened bread. And what we said in communion, what's really true is that they're pointing back to the experience that the people of Israel had when they were leaving Egypt. And it's really, really important for us to have our communion story grounded in the story of the Israelite people to understand that the symbolism of the Exodus is the symbolism of our journey of faith. That what we're on is a place uh, of being a people who have gone from a place of bondage, from a place of being uh, stuck under the rulership of sin, gone through a process of coming into a promised land of freedom and relationship and intimacy and fruitfulness with Christ. That journey is important for us to understand. And the start of that journey for the Israelite people was simply uh, finally being delivered and finally having a word from God that said to them, you are now free to get out of here. Now go and go quickly. And they packed up their stuff. Uh, they said, we've got some flour. We're going to need something to eat along the way. Let's make some bread. We don't have time for it to rise. Let's leave the yeast out. We'll cook it quick and we'll get the heck out of here and start marching and start walking. And that's what they did. We see it in the text here in Deuteronomy chapter 16. It says, do not eat it with bread made with yeast. It's talking about the Passover supper. But for seven days, eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. And so they took their bread, they cooked it fast, and they began to walk. Uh, this phrase, the bread of affliction, is important for us because when the, the Jewish people, Jesus and his disciples, would have eaten the Passover and eaten that bread, what they would be recognizing and trying to remember is that uh, the place where we were before in Egypt was a place of affliction. It was a place where we were bound by the sins of the Egyptians and the gods that they worshipped. That we were under the consequences of that. We were under, uh, we didn't have the freedom to make our own decisions. We didn't have the freedom to grow our own food. Uh, we had to make bricks uh, with straw. Uh, we had to help build pyramids. We had to help build cities. We were under uh, a drivenness to do a vision that wasn't uh, the vision that God had for his people. And we needed to have freedom. And for us, uh, the first part of redemption for us is accepting that idea that we need it. Accepting that idea that when we choose to follow Jesus, uh, we leave save slavery to sin and its afflictions behind. And, and, and to just stop, pause uh, there for a second, that idea of sin for us in Canadian culture is like, what the heck are you talking about? If you're talking to your neighbors, did you know you're a sinner? How's that fly with your neighbor at the pub or your neighbor in the workplace? Did you know you're a sinner? Like that does not even compute in our culture. Did you know that you're bound to sin? That all of these behaviors in your life, you keep hurting yourself? Did you know that you're bound, that you're stuck in that? I just thought you should know that you're a slave. Excuse me? Right? It does not compute for us, but it's something that we as a church and we as a community have to preach, have to teach, have to help people understand that there is a necessity for us as human beings to be freed uh, from our patterns, our habits, our addictions and behaviors uh, to be able to go forward into what God has uh, called us to do. As soon as we accept 
that there are uh, moral laws that govern us, that we sometimes move and act and live outside of those moral laws, as soon as we accept that, we can begin to process uh, that there is something that we're stuck in. There's something that we're stuck in. Uh, we have to acknowledge sin. And the, the, we have some strong defenses against that. Right? We have some strong defenses of sin. What are, what are your defenses against acknowledging that you have sin in your life? Well, the first one is, is that there are really, really, really evil people out there, and I'm not one of them. Right? Right? Real deal. Uh, I'm going to tell you a story of uh, Maria... Ochoa Lopez. Some of you will have heard this story in the news. Um, it would have been uh, somewhere in May uh, 2019. She's a 19-year-old girl uh, who was pregnant with a little baby. And another woman who had lost her baby about a year ago uh, realized that she was pregnant, realized that there was an opportunity for her there, gathered together two of her friends, and these three friends uh, lured Maria to their house with the promise that they had some baby supplies for her. When they got her in the house, they distracted her by giving her some food, and they put a bag over her head, and they killed her, and they cut the baby out of her, and they took the baby. That's evil. That is deep evil. And I, but I'm not that. That's sin, but I'm not that. Right? So we take the evil of the world, the, the, the grossness, murder, sickness, sin, uh, the Holocaust, all of these things that are deeply reflect, reflective of the brokenness of the world, and we like as people to separate ourselves from that and say that that's not our deal. Uh, and Alexander Solzhen says this, he says, if it were only so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were only necessary to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? There is that same evil in you and that same evil in me. When we talk with the church family, uh, with our leadership about vision and where to go and what to do, there is something in my heart when I think about reaching people in the community uh, that we care about, uh, reaching our friends, reaching our neighbors, reaching uh, the thousands of people in this region uh, that don't go to church, there is something in my heart that is absolutely passionately uh, driven uh, by a need uh, to reach them. And when I go down the streets of Carlton Place, there are times when I'm literally weeping uh, with a sense of the brokenness of the world and, and feeling an urgency and feeling a desperation for us to be a church that does discipleship better and preaches the gospel. And so there's that pure and beautiful peace in me that is longing to see the gospel go forward in our community. But the other thing that's in the room is if our church is successful and growing and healthy, then nobody will criticize me as a pastor. Right? I passionately want to reach the lost. 
and I passionately want to just be safe and have everybody love me. My motives are mixed. Maybe if the church is big enough and growing well enough, then I can say, man, I just, uh, the people will see the value and I'll be able to have a bigger salary and be able to put my kids through college. That's not why we're reaching the lost. That lack of trust, that sense of ego, that sense of that need to be seen as a person who is successful, there's a dividing line that goes through my heart. There's beauty, a passionate call to the mission that's inside me, and there is also wickedness and sin. And my lack of trusting God is an offense to him. It is brokenness. It is wicked. And it is evil. And you have those spaces in your life too. And if you want to journey with Jesus to where he's calling you to go, we have to start at the point where we are willing to confess our sin, where we are willing to take and recognize that we need an exodus from somewhere. We need to be saved from something. That where we are right now isn't good, holy, and we need him to save us. That's the real deal for you, and that's the real deal for me. Your sin might be different. But you need an exodus, as I need an exodus. The beginning of the journey is just in admitting that we need it. This next line in this text is, uh, because you left Egypt in haste, Sometimes you need to leave it and you need to leave it in haste and you need to leave your sin in a way even if it's costly to you. I remember a story of Anna and I um, leaving Saskatchewan. This wasn't really a story of leaving uh, sin and haste, but we were there uh, as a young couple. We were just 21 years old. We were married. We'd gone out to pastor a church. Uh, we'd driven our little Volkswagen Rabbit uh, out there, uh, filled to the brim with all of the possessions that we owned. We went out there to pastor the church and ended up through crazy set of circumstances, pastoring two churches and trying to survive out there as best we could on like $400 uh, a month. That was our whole salary. Uh, trying to live out there, trying to find work, trying to find jobs, trying to make it happen, uh, going through all kinds of crazy struggles, loving the people, uh, and the whole uh, bit of that journey was 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 crazy, like was crazy. Uh, but when we uh, realized it was time to go, you know, we were struggling, trying to, like we looked everywhere for work, they couldn't pay us anymore. We were trying to find out, you know, how can we just simply make ends meet? We were willing to stay. And I called up Ken Hall, and I said, Ken, what do we do? We, we just can't do it. We just don't have food. We're, we're impoverished. Uh, we want to stay. Do we push through, or what do we do? And Ken said, it's just time to come home. And so we took our little Volkswagen Rabbit with a trailer uh, that we had. And Volkswagen Rabbit isn't your obvious uh, towing vehicle. Um, and we took our trailer and we attached the thing to it. And we'd receive, like, like in terms of our personal wealth, uh, we'd receive some Canada savings bonds uh, that, we'd, uh, that we'd sold to kept staying and working there. So we had absolutely nothing. But we had one precious possession that we gained while we were out there. Our entire growth as a family was this beautiful queen-size bed uh, that my aunt gave 
gave us. It was amazing. And we wrapped it perfectly. We put it on the trailer, plastic and tape and sealed it and tarp and, and straps and the whole deal on the back of the trailer. And driving just a few kilometers down the road, we realized we were not going to make it over the hills of Lake Superior towing this trailer with our little 1977 Volkswagen Rabbit. It wasn't going to happen. We were making an exodus from a hard place to a good place to a promised land. And literally, we pulled over on the journey at my grandpa's house. The knots I'd tied them so passionately tight to keep our beautiful, precious bed uh, with us, our, our one lovely possession. And I remember I couldn't get the knots undone. I remember literally uh, taking a knife and cutting those knots and dumping that one possession behind us at my grandfather's, putting our little Volkswagen Rabbit in gear and going home to a place of safety for us. And for you, that's probably something of what you need to do. You need to leave in haste from the place of bondage that you're in. It might mean leaving a friend. You might have a really good friend that you love and care for who's stuck in the same bondage that you're stuck in. And every time you go and hang over at their place, the weed comes out. That might not be a friend that you get to take with you on your journey. You might have to leave them behind to follow Jesus. Whatever it is that ties you to the sin that is holding you back and holding you in bondage is a thing to be cut loose and left behind beside the side of the road. Just like the Israelites, they made their bread fast. They didn't have time to let it rise. They take, took nasty-tasting bread with them, bitter-tasting bread with them, and they went on the road just to get where God was calling them. That might be your journey. What is holding you back from going where God is calling you to go? Well, there's a picture of a little red rabbit. And the last question for us out of the text is, how do we get free from sin? And I know we're going a little bit long here, but just stick with me. How do we get free from sin? In the text, it talks about, then came this day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. The story in Exodus 12, uh, 12 to 13 reads like this. This is God. I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood of the lamb on your doorpost shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And we have this little Canadian flag here to remind us that this language doesn't fit in our Canadian sensibilities either. We serve a God who is a holy and righteous God. And he has only one way of dealing with our sin. He judges it and he destroys it. Or we take it with us and he judges and destroys us. We have to be separated from it. And it has to be dealt with. And we say, who the heck are you, God, to say what's right and what's wrong and why I can do some things and why I can't do some things? Are you some kind of narcissistic monster that you've made up all of these rules? Like, what's wrong with you? I don't want to follow a God who's got rules like that. 
I don't want to follow a God who says that everything has to be his way. I don't want anything to do with him. There's only one problem with us saying that to God is he is God and we are not. He is God and we are not. He is the one who has to say that to us because he created the universe and he has the right to say how it ought to be. He is Lord. He is holy. This does not seem like a friendly, happy, evangelistic message we want to tell to our friends, but we have to tell them who he is. We have to let them know who he is, that he is a righteous judge. And they'll say, you've talked about him as being loving, you talk about him being loving, but if he's so loving, why is he like that? Why is this judgment in him? How do we understand it? If we revisit the story of Maria, who had herself murdered and had her little baby cut out of her, can you imagine a God who loves her that wouldn't bring down vengeance on sin that ripped her baby from her body and murdered her? A God who is love, out of that love for us, is necessarily a God of wrath. He's necessarily a God of wrath. Wrath flows from his love. Wrath is his love. Because he loves you, every evil thing that's been done to you makes him angry. And every evil thing that you have done to another makes him angry. Because we owe people a thousand debts from the words we've said and the things we've done. And the answer to the equation of God's wrath and love is that the blood of the lamb on our doorposts is what separates us from judgment. That child, Jesus, that man, Jesus, is like that Passover lamb who died for the sins of the community. He is that last sacrifice for us. For the things that we've done for others, to others. He's paid the price. And God's justice, his wrath, is satisfied on himself. And you've heard us preach this message a thousand times, but this is what you need to be telling your friends. that he separates sin from you if we would accept this incredible gift by taking it on himself. And there's this incredible reality of this story where the Jewish people took this lamb and they killed it and they shed its blood and they took its blood on branches and they spread it on the doorposts. They identified themselves to God and to themselves and to the Egyptian community as those who had been separated, as those who had been washed, that the door of their house is a place in which judgment would not enter because the lamb had been killed for them. So the question for you, the question for me again is, 
Will we let ourselves identify that deeply with the sacrifice of Jesus? So that the world sees that that's what saves us? So that God sees that, that that's what saves us? And so that we know that that's what saves us? And nothing else saves us. Not our good works, not our good deeds. Nothing but the blood of the Lamb saves us. And without that, we're smoked. We're toast. It's not only important to understand it, but it is important to be identified. We read this in Luke chapter 12, a little bit earlier in the book. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. What you say, what you demonstrate, what comes out of your mouth matters. This story has to be declared to your friends. It's not just good enough to love them and send them a cake when they're sick. You have to sit down with them and tell them the story of how Jesus saved you. The words, the story, the gospel matters. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation. You have to tell the story. You have to accept it. You have to embrace it. The next line says this, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. When that is seen, we are set free. We are made whole. We are released from our sin and our bondage. And then our exodus begins. Then freedom comes. Then joy comes. Then life comes. Then healing comes. Glory comes. Worship comes. And we're made new. We enter into the place of freedom and joy and love that he has for us. But we have to go through the path of leaving our leaven behind us, of putting the blood of Christ on the doorposts of our lives. And only then can we walk forward in freedom. And only then can your friends walk forward in freedom. This is the gospel. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is what we're proclaiming. So these three things are required. We need to admit that we need to leave our sin. We need to admit that only God can help. And we need to just publicly identify it. in the context of telling this story. And that's where the joy is for us. Let's stand. Father, this is the context for the conversation about the table. This is the context for communion. That we are part of an Exodus community. We are part of a community that is being set free. We are a part of a community that is being led uh, into wholeness and health and life and joy. But don't let us try to get there without following. The path of confession. The path of identifying with you.
Father, I pray for anyone in this place who's been in a, a spot where sin is something that others have to deal with but not me. For anyone who's been in a place of, yeah, I can go forward on your journey, Jesus, but I can take all this stuff with me. Would you let repentance come? Would you let conviction of our sin come? We would own it. And would you cause us to simply accept you? To accept your love, to accept the incredible loving gift of your blood shed for us. Come, Lord Jesus, and save someone today. Cause someone here to decide to follow this path with us today. Give them the courage to identify with you for the first time today. Give us courage to revisit these mechanisms of healing and wholeness again in our lives. And give us courage to tell our friends. For we are not ashamed of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're here and you have made a decision to follow Christ, please just come and talk with us. We'd love to spend some time with you. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Vineyard, visit ovv.ca.